So happy new. Yeah. I don't know if I'm still, are we allowed to still say that? We are on the 14th. We, have we crossed the line? Am I meant to wish you happy Valentine's Day? Are we there yet? <laughs> if not, happy new. Either way, you can open your Bible to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. My family just loves the, the novelty of the new year. My kids often, like a few days before, start saying things like, oh, you know, I'm not going to see them until next year. I'm not going to do this again until next year. Or, sure, this is the first bath I've had all year. <laughs> So I want to take a little bit of a leaf out of their book, and I want to preach from something that I have been praying for you every single day this year. (laughs) Actually, it's been a lot longer than that, but that's the truth. And it's from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. When when you see it, you'll you'll see why this has gripped my heart, and I trust during the morning that it will carry some weight in you, maybe to pick up and, and pray of your own life, your own family, your business, or your own 2024. This is uh, verse 15 in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, For this reason, ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, I thank God for 3CR these last few weeks. Thank you. Thank you for the prayers, for the visits, for the calls for the meals, for the kindness. Thank you. (laughs) Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Hupa balo that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. We can spend all year on this. I heard during December, someone from Bible College was saying that they'd gone to class And uh, the lecturer had gotten up and had written one verse from Matthew on the board that says, come to me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then she said, you've got 30 minutes to get 30 insights into this one verse. Go. She sent him outside, come to me and I'll make you fishers of men. 30 minutes to get 30 points. She said, don't come back unless you've got 30 things from this verse. And when they came back, she asked, is there anyone here who didn't get 30? And every one of them had gotten 30 insights from this tiny little verse. And then she said, who here got those 30 points in the first 15 minutes? Not a hand went up. In 20 minutes, one hand went up. 25, a few more. Just before the 30 minutes ran up, the rest of the hands went up. And this was her point. Her point was this. There's something about Scripture. When you meditate on it, or like me, when you pray over it morning by morning, or when you, when you marinate in Scripture, there's something that just comes alive that you don't quite see at first blush. And so what I want to do today is I want, to, I want to peel back some of the layers that I didn't see at first blush. As rich as it is when you just read through it like that, I want to go just a little bit deeper. Not 30 things over the next 30 minutes, maybe three. <laughs> but I, I trust that as we do this, this portion of Scripture will come alive for you for 2024. So he starts there, he says, For this reason, ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now that's a very different remember to our remember. Our remember is, oh, I pray for you. 
which means just as much as that emoji praying hands. <laughs> yes, pretty much nothing. But to the Jew, remembering you in their prayers was something intentional and diligent and daily, which is why he says that I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Paul starts by leaning into the full Godhead of the triune heavenly Father, Son, and Spirit, asking one thing. He asks one thing for you and I for 2024, that we might know him better. Everything else is downstream. The aim of all this travailing, and if you, if you look through Philippians, if you look through Colossians, he prays exactly the same prayer. When he writes to Timothy, he's praying exactly the same prayer. To Titus, the same prayer, that we might know him better. This is ground zero for Paul. It should be ground zero for 2024. It was ground zero for Jesus. He says, this is eternal life, that you may know him. So that's what he's going after. And when you see that, it changes everything downstream. Let's look at what he says. He says, I pray, this is verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know, one, the hope to which he has called you, two, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and three, his incomparably great power for us who believe. So let's take a look at the first one. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he has called you. During the week, we had a staff meeting, and I said, okay, I'm going to go around the room. I'm going to start on this side, and I want to know what is your favorite Bible verse. And if I had to do that this morning, if I had to just take a row and say, okay, we're going to start with you, and we're going to walk, work all the way here. What did your favorite Bible verse be? And as we went person to person, it was incredible to see the diversity of what it is that, that jumps out at us from Scripture, that God is dealing with us. And then I said, okay, now I want to know, what is your favorite chapter in the Bible? And I asked Mish, and she said, instantly, Isaiah 46. I thought, oh, okay. I thought I might catch the guys when you talk a whole chapter of the Bible. And suddenly she was in tears. And we gave her some time to compose herself and say, why Isaiah 46? She says, this is the promise that God has given me, this chapter, for my son who's running away from God at the moment. Wow. And she says, I hang on to this. Beautiful. Every day. Wow. This is the hope. What God has said in Isaiah 46 for my son. And so we opened up to Isaiah 46 and we began to read through and we began to pray through. And it's remarkable. Actually, I prayed for him this morning through Isaiah 46. It says, my salvation will come quickly. Father, you said your promise is... <laughs> Salvation will come quickly. Father, I pray that his salvation will come quickly. This is the hope that she's holding on to. And I said to her, you've just become exhibit A of what I was wanting to share. Because I came across this portion of scripture in Romans chapter 4 from the message during my December holiday that I have grounded our little journey in. It says, Abraham didn't tiptoe around God's promise asking cautiously skeptical questions. If you want to know what my personality is, cautiously skeptical questions. But he plunged into the promise. Amen. What a phrase. Amen. He plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God, fully convinced that God would make good on what he said. Ah, oh, may 3CR be a, a church who plunge into the promises of God. I've been asked, our family's been asked, like, how is it that you go through that? And still, you're here on Sunday raising your arms, smiling on your face, because we have been plunging into his promises. Beautiful 
That is the hope to which he has called us. We've had to press into his presence. We've had to cry out to God and say, God, will you show me? What are you doing? What hope do we have? Plunge into his promise. Because if I'm left to myself, I'm just, like that first line says, asking cautiously skeptical questions. I don't think you'll answer my prayers. I think this is a little bit too big for you, but you know, plunge into the promises. I went through, down a little bit of a rabbit hole um, during this festive season, looking at NASA. I got onto their website and I got stuck. I don't know if you know the space shuttle. I've got a, I've got a picture for you. I came across the space shuttles that between 1980 and 2011, these space shuttles were used over and over again. There was only five of them over the 30 years. And it's quite remarkable when you see it, it just changed the face of uh, space travel and journeying and science and all of that. And I was looking at this picture because uh, for me, when I think shuttle, I think that T minus five, four, and then that flames. I think if we had to put it on, we'd blurst the speakers. But I was looking at this photo, it, it kind of caught my attention because I was wondering to myself, why, if you are going to space, are you going to use such Peepy little rockets on the side there. See those little stick figures on the side? The, the fuel tank is the orange one in the middle. But the rockets are those tiny little sticks on the side there. And I don't know why, but that intrigued me. So I did a little bit of digging, and I came across something fascinating. They dispersed the production of those rockets. And so in order to get it from wherever it was in the U.S. to the uh, Air Force, or the space base, they had to send it via rail, which meant that all the bits and pieces had to fit through the little train track tunnels and around the train track bends and through the train track stations. And then I looked and I saw that actually the standard size, and I think if I was Mitchell, I'd probably be able to get either side, but just bear with me in my shortness. But if, if for this train track to carry a rocket, the rocket couldn't be any wider than this. And then I thought, I wonder why it's that wide. And then I found that this space travel that they were about to embark on was limited by this train track that was uh, determined, a, a set unit of size, in 1815. And then I wondered, why did they go with that? And I discovered that actually it was because a few years before when they started doing trains in the UK, that was the standard size of a train track. And I wondered, why did the UK go with that? And I discovered, well, that's because that's how wide the tram was back in the day, in the 1700s. I wondered, why were the trams that wide? Well, because the, the general road was about that size in the mid-1700s. And I wondered, why were the roads that wide? And I discovered it was because horse and carriage needed about that size. Why are the horse and carriage that size? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my mind. <laughs> because the Roman roads were that wide 2,000 years ago. Why, Why were the Roman roads? <laughs> because some kippy decided, well, we needed our platoon to march shoulder to shoulder. And something like 100 and something B.C., See, why are we plunging into the promise? Why is Paul praying, oh, Father, I pray that you would enlighten the, the eyes of their heart, that you might know the hope that you are called to. 
because it is in our nature to make these little pippy rockets, these tiny little soldier-wide enough roads. But what God has called us to is exceedingly abundantly above what we could ever ask or imagine. See, we think 2024 is going to unfold and look like this. But God is leaning over us going, no, what I have in store for you requires your plunging into my promises. Come and get to know me. I'm the God of space travel and the God of soldiers walking shoulder to shoulder. But you don't know what you're going to face in 2024. It might be a December next to an ICU bed. Or you might be discovering a replacement for solar energy. Irrespective of where you fall, do not be limited by your shallow thinking. Get to know God. Plunge into his promises. And because we don't tend to do that, Paul prayed for us. And I pray for us. And I pray for me. Because that is my bent. Paul says, oh, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. That you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. This one got me stuck. Because... I'm not so good with this language thing, but this just seemed a little confusing to me because I was actually praying, oh Lord, may we know, enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might know the rich and glorious inheritance he's given to us, us, us as people. Let us know this inheritance. But it kind of bothered me because it's, it says the riches of his glorious inheritance in his, is it, is it his inheritance in us? Are we his inheritance? Where is this inheritance? And I looked at all the translations and the Greek and everything. And then I came across the New Living Translation that said, I pray that your heavenly Father will open your eyes to see that you are his rich and glorious inheritance. Do you know this God? Do you know this God that Paul prayed to? Probably not, because the Ephesians didn't seem to know him, because that's why Paul was praying. Probably not because, like the rest of the world, do you know what the single most used emotion description for 2023 was the word disappointment? We have that disappointment in situations, disappointment in God. We think we're a disappointment. But he's saying, no, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you might know that you are his rich and glorious inheritance. You know, and when you see that, you go through the rest of Ephesians 1. It says in verse 4, I chose you. In verse 5, I adopted you. In verse 7, I redeemed and forgave you. Verse 9, I make known the mystery of my will, all according to his great pleasure, because he takes delight in you, because you're his inheritance. I don't know if you've ever had to claim inheritance. I think when my father-in-law passes away, it's going to just be knives. <laughs> Buried bodies. <laughs> I'm just suspecting that that would happen in Belgium. He's got millions in the bank. He's in his 70s. Any minute now, and the knives will be out. Yeah, you've seen the movies where it's like, hmm, where's that cousin? Oh, he passed away. <laughs> you know, that's roll up your sleeves, bring it on. That's in God's heart to you. Don't you come between me and my inheritance. I will have them. I wonder if you know that this is how God feels about you. To Paul, it seems like we need to get this before we lean in and actually get to know God. That's why he prayed about it. Ongoingly. Because our natural default is like, keep it here. Rory and Mel, yes. Us? No. Tony Compola tells a story. He was preaching somewhere in the U.S., 
and it was his first time in this church, and he said they were a little bit more uh, charismatic than he was used to, because before he got up to preach, they all gathered in a circle around him, laying hands on him, and he said, it was awkward. You know, this guy's pushing heavy on your shoulder, and that guy's making you fall over. So, but then there was this one beast of a man who just sort of leant over everyone and put his hand on his head while he prayed for him. <laughs> and to make it worse, this guy used his head as an exclamation mark. Lord, we pray. Bless Tony. <laughs> He's always one of those, you know. We pray, Lord, Father God, that you, Lord, Father God, would bless Lord, Father God, us, Lord, Father God. You know, there's always one in the crowd. But to make it worse, this giant of a man wasn't praying for Tony, was praying for a guy named Charlie Schultz. Oh, Lord, we pray you bless Charlie Schultz. He's thinking, what? You know, like one eye over like, am I the only one that's weirded out by this guy? And we pray, you know, Charlie, who lives by the water tower. There's something wrong with you. Number 73, pray that he won't leave his wife and children this week. Can you just say amen? So he went through this slight trauma, got up, preached, packed his bags, left, he's driving home, gets onto the freeway, sees a, a guy hitchhiking, he thinks, well, yeah, maybe this will be a good distraction after a very average Sunday. So he picks up the hitchhiker and they get to know one another, where you're going, what you're doing, uh, my name is Tony Kampala, oh, my name is Charlie Schultz. So, <laughs> takes the first turn off and he does a U-turn. And he goes, oh, where are you going? I was going that way. He says, Charlie! You're planning to leave your wife and kids, and I'm taking you home. <laughs> like, how did you know? God told me. <laughs> so Charlie is suddenly shtum. He's just like, turns off. He's driving up towards the water tower. He's like, how do you know where I live? God told me. <laughs> just to freak him out, he says, number 73, right? <laughs> Walks old Charlie up to the front door, bangs on the door, wife comes out, all crying, eyes red. He says, ma'am, I brought Charlie home. He's not just home, he's going to stay and he's going to work on this marriage because God told me he would. <laughs> they invited him in, the family got saved. Marriage is white hot because this is the God that we serve. Yeah. The hound of heaven. You can be walking out on your wife and kids, not even a child of God, but he sees you as his inheritance. It's never too dark, never too dysfunctional, never too broken. It's always redeemable, always able to be restored. But we don't get that. So I've been praying, Lord, would you open and enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might know who we are to you as we get to know you better. And thirdly, he says, I pray that you might know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, going through the season we've been going through, you finally understand why I got locked and loaded on Ephesians 1. His incomparably great power for us who believe. Talk about plunging into his promises. But here's the problem that verse doesn't stand on its own. He didn't say, hey, listen, Ephesians, I've been praying for you. You guys need to get to know God's incomparably great power. He says, no, 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 I'm praying for you. You guys need to get to know your heavenly Father. I started not liking that so much. Because then he says, and not just that you know this incomparably great power, but that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. 
And that really started to bother me. Because the more I meditated for this thing, and the more I prayed for you, and the more I prayed for my daughter, and the more I brought our family before the throne of our Heavenly Father of incomparably great power, the more I realized I want a Jesus who calms the storm. I do not want anything to do with the Jesus who sleeps in the boat during the storm. I want a shepherd who leads me beside still waters. I do not want anything to do with a shepherd who leads me through the valley of the shadow of December. I'm sitting there next to the ICU bed. You see, because if we are demanding the Jesus who calms the storm, one of two responses happens. Either we go into denial. I cut that off in Jesus' name. I'm the head and not the tail. Just receive it. Or we deconstruct our faith. Either one of them leads us away from the goal, which is to know him better. And so I had to sit next to the bed in ICU and explain to a 13-year-old what I, at 49... I'm just about learning. We are going to go from A to B. Because God is like that. He has spoken and we are plunging into his promises. But when we reach that T-junction, either one of those four surgeries, the dialysis, the chronic medication, the medical bills, when we reach that T-junction, we might have a shortcut. We might come face to face with the incomparably great power for those who believe. But we also might have a bit of a detour. What determines if we go right or left is one thing. Which way will help us know God better? And my flesh hates that. I don't want to know you better. I want you to make my daughter better. Well, you might be saying, I don't want to know you better. I want you to make my marriage better. I want you to make my finances better. I want you to make my disease better. I want you to make my singleness better. I want you to make my business better. But then you open up the Bible and it says, Consider a pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces. We get to know him better. Or we read in Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because in all of this, we get to know God better while we plunge into his promises on one side. We're also getting to know him better on the other side. While I'm standing there saying, Father, my flesh hates this out of the corner of my eye. I'm seeing my faith begin to be fanned to flame because I'm getting to know him better. While I was going down this rabbit hole, I came across these uh, biospheres that NASA had been building through the years. See, they wanted to know, it's one thing to build these lovely rockets to get to space, but what if we land on Mars? Uh, By the time you get there, you want some plants, some veggies, you want to have some lamb shank, So we need to make a plan now already to see if that is even possible. And so they created these biospheres to create sort of an an Earth-like atmosphere and climate. And their success rate was remarkable. Google it when you get home. They've got rainforests. 
They have an ocean with coral reefs and diving experiences. They've got deserts and savannas. They've got veggie gardens and trees. And for all intents and purposes, a roaring, raging success. Except for one thing. All their trees fell over. Just before the trees matured, they would fall over. And that's a problem. You know, you've just flown all the way over to Mars. You want to just sit in the shade, and this thing falls over and kills you. <laughs> it's really bad press. So they wanted to know what on earth is going on. Why are these randomly these trees just fall over? And they had to go to the very molecular level before they understood what was going on. It had plenty roots. It was as tall as most trees. It had the leaves and the bark and the branches. But one thing it lacked was stress wood. Stress wood gets formed by one thing and one thing only, storms. When the wind blows, that little tree bends a little bit and there's these molecular fractures, kind of like when you're going to gym, hey Pete, and you're bench pressing at 2,000 kgs, and there's just a little bit of a tear in the chest there, and then your muscle heals and you get better and bigger and stronger. That's what happens with trees. Without stress wood, that tree is useless. It does not reproduce because it doesn't grow to maturity. It's a hazard because you can't walk underneath it. You can't use the wood to build because it doesn't hold anything. You can't make weaponry because that bow just bends and snaps. It needs storms. And when I read that, I realized that's exactly what I'm after. I'm after a Christian biosphere. Just give me Jesus who calms the storm. That's what you're after with your children. Parents, stop building biospheres for your children where there are no storms. Here's a ribbon for pitching up. <laughs> These days, one out of eight job interviews includes a parent. Biosphere. <laughs> and you know this? More than 50% of teenagers between the ages of 18 and then 25, more than 50% of our children between the ages of 18 and 25 drift from God. Because for the first time, they step out of that biosphere into wind, and like those trees, they just fall over. If we want to know the incomparably great power that God works in those who believe, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, we have to step out of that biosphere, take a hold of his hand, and walk that journey of getting to know him better. Beautiful. Unless we do that, we will end up building a Christian future that will only house a few soldiers marching shoulder to shoulder, and we'll miss the great hope that our Heavenly Father has called us to for 2024. And so I've been praying. I've been praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know him better. And I've been praying that he opens the eyes of our hearts to whatever is coming in the way there, whether it's building biospheres, whether it's looking at what God can't love this mess, or whether it's a small thinking approach that God will slowly pull us out of that for 2024. Because this is what I'm trusting for 2024. There's a documentary called I Am Rochester. It's a city in the U.S., and they're looking at what happened in Rochester when a guy named Charles Finney came to town. 
Charles Finney was a preacher. He'd gone to preach at Rochester, and God had moved so mightily. It was such a good Sunday that the eldership team asked him if he wouldn't be interested in coming onto team as the lead pastor there. But Rochester is like... Newcastle. No, I don't want, I don't want to offend anyone here, you know? <laughs> it's like Kempton meets Springs meets Hilbra. On a bad day. And so he wasn't very attracted to stepping out of his biosphere and going to Rochester. And he spoke to his council, and they all said exactly the same. Can anything good come out of Rochester? God, all the churches that have been planted there have died. Talk about wind and storms. You don't want to go there. And so he got on his knees and said, Father, would you show me your promise over Rochester? And then plunged into the promises that he was given to the point that he decided to take that post as pastor of Rochester. In six months, 100,000 people were added to that church. Six months. I'll, I'll read you headlines from the newspapers. They said, it's a total city takeover. From the poorest of the poor to the wealthy elites, a la 3CR. One reporter said, this is the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit since Pentecost. But this, this caught my attention. It said, they've become global change agents. And in the criminal court system, you could still feel the effects of this revival 40 years later. See, I'm praying, Father, may we know you better. Because when we do, what transpires in our midst, what happens in the city, could very well be felt in 2064. Six months, 100,000 people added. What if in six months, all these churches that we've prayed for, a million people get radically saved? You know what it will do to the city? We become global change agents. It will be a total city takeover. It will be the greatest outpouring in Pretoria since Pentecost. And who knows, maybe, just maybe, in 40 years' time, in 2064, because we keep praying, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ will give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better than in 2064, those ripples will still be felt through our city. So, Father, we pray that. We pray that, Lord Jesus. We pray that for each and every person here, each family, each set of hands, every heart, every home. We pray for our city, Father. We pray that you would give your spirit of wisdom and revelation even to those like Charlie Schultz, who are heading out of town, packed their bags, given up. Would you give each and every one of us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better? And Father, where a lack of hope comes in the way, where we're living small and shallow Christian lives, would you bury your spirit deep in our hearts? May we be people who plunge into your promises. I pray, Father, that we would know that we are your inheritance, that you delight over us, that you pursue us like the hound of heaven. Your justice and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. And I pray, Lord God, that we would encounter the God of incomparably great power. Turn the city upside down, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.